0: Welcome back to the Curbsiders Internal Medicine Podcast, the podcast that uses expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. I'm Dr. Matthew Watto, here with my co-host, Dr. Paul Williams. Hello, Paul. Hello, Matt. Thank you for joining me again.
1: Oh, and thank you, as always, for having me.
0: And uh, tonight, we will be talking with Dr. Marisa Galicia Castillo which uh, I'll only say once because it's a tough name for me to pronounce. Uh, And we'll be talking with her about persistent pain syndromes, whether it's arthritis or neuropathic pain. Paul, uh, I know you see a lot of this in your practice like I do.
1: Oh, yeah, Tom. I I feel it dominates most of my day.
0: And like me, you cure almost everybody, I imagine?
1: I've I've never had a patient come back um, with pain <laughs> after I see them the first time, so they all do extraordinarily well just with Tylenol. It's it's fairly astonishing. <laughs> but I, I guess I've just been lucky.
0: That is that is totally believable to me. I have no <laughs> I have no reason to question what you say. Okay, it's
1: really, I'm just here for moral support. I don't expect to get a whole lot out of this. So uh, <laughs> I hope you have some questions.
0: Okay. <laughs> all right. Well. Dr. Galicia Castillo is a geriatrician from Eastern Virginia Medical School, where she actually serves as the program director for their fellowship in geriatric medicine. She is currently the Sue Faulkner Scribner Professor of Geriatrics and holds board certification in internal medicine, geriatrics, and hospice and palliative medicine. She has research interests in palliative medicine and medical education, and we heard about her after reading her article in the Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine, which discusses the use of opioids for persistent pain in the elderly, um, and we're talking about non-cancer pain. As you can imagine, this is a bit of a controversial topic given the recent CDC guidelines, and that's why we thought this would be an interesting discussion. So without further ado, here's our talk with Dr. Marisa Galicia Castillo. Welcome back to the Curbsiders internal medicine podcast. This is Dr. Matthew Watto and Dr. Paul Williams. We are here with Dr. Marisa Galicia Castillo and we will be talking about chronic non-cancer pain. Hi Marisa, how are you?
2: Good, hi Matt, hi Paul.
0: Well, thank you so much for joining us. We are really excited to talk to you because as Paul and I were saying a few moments ago, we often feel helpless in the face of pain, uh, and, and we're hoping that you can help us out a little bit.
2: I certainly give it my best.
0: Okay. So the first question, and, and I guess one of the things that sort of, uh, the, the way I heard, about, I heard about you was by reading your article, the recent article you had in Cleveland Clinic Journal of Medicine, where you were talking about the use of opioids for persistent pain in older adults. And I thought that was interesting um, especially with the, the recent guidelines that the CDC had. And I wanted to sort of just talk about, uh, kind of get into this with you. So how did that, did those guidelines change your practice at all? Or, uh, yeah, did they affect the way that you're practicing for, for chronic pain?
2: Sure. It's interesting because when I initially wrote that article, those guidelines had not come out. So, um, has it changed much? I, I think one of the big things was just uh, adding, you know, checking on the. Um, oh, I'm blanking on the name of it. The.
0: Is it. Do you mean the, the website where you can kind of look to see the prescribing? Like yeah, where they've been? The prescribing,
2: okay. Yeah, prescribing practices. I forget what they're called. It's the PMP. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can't remember what it stands for. But that's one of the things now, just starting to check on those. Those um, a lot of my practices uh, actually in palliative medicine. So, and actually, the guidelines exclude palliative medicine or end of life care.
1: Mm-hmm. But we
2: still have quite a number of geriatric patients who don't fit that criteria, who do have pain that is persistent. And we we try to use the verbiage of persistent pain versus chronic pain. I know I know in the article it's called chronic pain. That's what folks are used to. But there is still that negative connotation of chronic pain, mm-hmm. um, so it's trying to use the language of persistent pain um, because it is there, and and oftentimes, especially in the geriatric po- population, it's it's often recognized so it's under-treated.
0: And why do you think it's underrecognized? What what about it makes it that way?
2: You know, one of the things when we're teaching the medical students when we just talk when we talk about what makes what's the difference with older patients is that that whole concept of ageism Mm -hmm. so when they see a patient and the patient says well I've got some back pain it's just because I'm old or I've got you know this is aching it's because I'm old (laughs) trying to just recognize that it's not because they're old there's some type of pathology that may be causing that and not just chalking it up to old age Um, so I think that just attitude is still out there, um, and it's it's prevalent even amongst those who are older. So if they feel that it's a normal part of aging to have some of these aches and pains that they've never had before, then they're not they don't find it necess- they don't find the it, that they need to go see a physician or get it checked out because they think it's quote normal aging. So I think that is still out there, um, and trying to just get at least at least our medical students our residents our fellows to think about, well, sometimes we have to ask them specifically because people will not say that there's something wrong with them because they think it's a normal part of aging, which it's not.
1: It's interesting. Matt and I were were talking before before we got you on the line about how with the new CDC guidelines, there's almost been, I don't want to call it a backlash, but it's, there's Mm -hmm. been sort of trying to reject this idea of being really aggressive about actually assessing pain as a vital sign. Like, I feel like that's sort of blamed as the reason for a current epidemic is often thrown out there as, as an issue for concern, and I just I wonder how that's going to impact eliciting pain symptoms from your older patients when there is this component of stoicism as it is. So, like, how aggressive are you going to be about trying to assess pain? And I wonder how these guidelines and sort of the reaction to them are going to impact that. Does that make any sense?
2: Oh, absolutely. My, my concern is that the pendulum is going to swing way to the other side. And we're seeing some of that um, in some of the regulations, at least from a DEA standpoint. For example, um, for the patients that we have in hospice or, or who are end of life, sometimes trying to get those. And those are folks that uh, the CDC guidelines do not really address because they know there's that need. But from a regulatory standpoint, sometimes it's difficult to get them their medications, which seems unfair because yes. these are folks who really need it. And, you know, morphine opioids are the gold standard for pain for these folks. But because of some of these other um, other things that are going on in medicine, those are the folks that are going to suffer because it's, it's a little bit it's become more difficult to get those resources to those patients. And I think
0: that I'm probably, and I like to air, air out all my guilty feelings on this podcast, <laughs> so I think I'm certainly uh, one of the more strict people about not prescribing opiates for for uh, persistent pain conditions because a lot of the time I think that... People want to jump right to that without having gone up the up the ladder. Whether it's the WHO ladder that I want to talk with you about, mm-hmm. or we're trying some other adjuvant, either pharmacologic or non-pharmacologic therapies. So I I really I, I do worry about it, and 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 I think maybe I'm under prescribing it, and that was something maybe maybe it'll convince me that I am under prescribing, and I I probably am in certain patients, but it's mm-hmm. really I think there's a long list of things I have before I usually get to the opiates. In, in my arm and, you know, in my, when I'm, when I'm reaching for something for chronic pain. Sure. Sure.
2: Right. Yeah. We try, we certainly follow the, the, the latter step one, step two, step three. But what we find is that with our geriatric population, there are certain things that we, we don't use because of the higher risk for it. So for example, in terms of non-opioid medications, I, we tend to stay, stay away from NSAIDs, which is um, a great medicine if you're 25, 30, 40 years old. But in someone who's 65 or older, we have to balance out the risk for renal complications as well as GI bleeding, um, which seems to be seems to be even more of a problem as you get older. So, um, so that's already knocked out a very powerful tool from our tool belt. Um, do I use NSAIDs? I do, but it's extre- it's with extreme caution. Uh, it's very time limited. I never do anything more than three to five days um, because of the dangers that it can pose. Uh, so that's knocked that out. Um, and then some of the other non-ad, the, I'm sorry, the other adjuvants, um, like for example, tricyc- tricyclics. They're very anticholinergic. So um, then we have the dangers of sedation and. Uh, cognitive impairment and orthostatic hypotension, so then that knocks that out. So in a sense, when we're talking about our geriatric patients, um, we're a little bit more limited in what we can use in terms of pharmacologics. Um, we do try non-pharmacologic type things. Uh, absolutely, that should always be first. Um, but once we get into having, once if those don't work or it's not effective enough, then our next step is going to be prescribing a medication. Um, And again, not having your NSAIDs and some of the other adjuvants available, um, oftentimes we do get to opioids, I think, sooner than you would with a younger person. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of meds though, I would definitely, one thing that um, we use a lot of is acetaminophen, which sometimes patients look at you funny, uh, but it works really well when it's scheduled.
1: This is yeah, and this is something else that I I, I feel like we've all run into where I, you you have the older patient who probably has some chronic kidney disease and they're having their pain, and then you say, well, how about acetaminophen? And, well, no, doc, acetaminophen doesn't work for me, and it's just gosh, there's <laughs> like, well, no, really, but you should you should probably try acetaminophen just because the other options are just seem to be so unappealing.
0: We do have we uh, well on the formulary at CashLac. Uh, we do have a topical NSAID, which I find works pretty well for the smaller joints or for patients who are a little bit thinner. They might get maybe they get some better absorption that way. So we mm-hmm. we use a lot of topical NSAIDs. I, I think that that maybe might be a little bit more of a costly uh, costly option for certain patient populations. So I'm not sure that it's a workaround everywhere. But the the rheumatology guidelines I think they're from 2011 or 2012 for for things like shoulder and knee pain. They have those kind of prioritized ahead of NSAID like the oral NSAIDs mm-hmm. for some patients, and as long as someone doesn't have CKD four, I feel pretty comfortable using the uh, the topical NSAIDs. Whether or not mm-hmm. I'm I'm causing progression to CKD four in patients with like CKD two or three, I don't I don't know. I, I haven't really detected it um, in my practice, but pretty much the Tylenol and scheduled Tylenol and the topical Voltaren are sort of or diclofenac are kind of what I go to.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you know the other the other options too are um, using injections if they have a degenerative disease. I mean, it's not the it's at least another option or another you know getting getting in touch with our orthopedic um, colleagues or uh, our family folks who do injections. That's just another option that that does work for some people.
0: Yeah, and we we I, I mean I I use a lot of injections for for the arthritis complaints, but it is, it is a tough, it is a tough spot to be in. So when you, when you kind of get across these, past these first line agents we're talking about, what do you reach for next in the, on the WHO ladder or just kind of in your own practice?
2: In, in our practice, in my practice, typically if I've done the scheduled Tylenol, um, and I actually go right to an opioid. Um, low dose, I do, I, we use the geriatric mantra, so always start low and go slow. Uh, but the other piece of that is and make sure it works, use enough. Um, sometimes we start and then kind of leave it at, I don't know, five milligrams of oxycodone and kind of leave it at that. But we also need to make sure it's effective. Um, so, again, using enough. Uh, But, yeah, typically in in my practice, uh, it's going to be scheduled Tylenol and then uh, an oxycodone, usually 5 milligrams. Sometimes if I I find someone who's a little frailer, even halving that to 2.5 milligrams every four hours as needed and see how they do with that and kind of progress from there.
1: Are there certain circumstances where you consider the SNRIs? I mean, I know duloxetine, I believe, is, is limited a little bit by renal function, um, mm-hmm. But, uh, and, then, and then there are some unwanted side effects, but are there circumstances or, or, or places where that's sort of your next medication that you reach for or that, that class? Yes, uh,
2: especially if there is a, um, a component of, um, especially depression or some other psycho, psychological component, uh, that certainly we go to that as well. Um, if there's a neuropathic component, we'll will try gab, gabapentin. Um, sometimes lyrica, but the evidence. It, what's what's difficult in geriatrics is that most of the evidence base is in young people. So, there it's not a strong evidence base, but it's certainly again having tools in our tool toolbox that we can try and use um, in that population.
0: And you were talking about using oxycodone. So the 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 CDC recommendations that came out. Are, t- are recommending we move away from the long-acting opioids, which I imagine is because of the overdose epidemic that's that's happening. So if someone takes a long-acting opiate and they overdose, it's obviously a bigger problem than if they take something short-acting. Uh, are you still using converting people to long-acting pills?
2: Oh, no. We always use the short-acting. Um, so uh, oxycodone, the immediate release. Okay. And yeah. I, we No, we never use never use long acting. Um, always start with us again, low dose, short acting, and then see how they do do a trial of that and see how they do with that.
0: So do you just jump, you, you jump over things like tramadol and Tylenol three as, as far as, um, kind of the intermediate step?
2: You know, ideally I would love to use hydrocodone, which is a lower, um, a lower opioid, mm-hmm. but that, does, that we really tried to avoid the combination medication. Okay. So hydrocodone only comes with acetaminophen, which then limits how much acetaminophen you can use. Right. Um, tramadol, um, just in practice. I mean, I, I will try that if, um, if folks are really nervous about using opioids, um, I mean, it's again. It is in itself, in in a sense, an opioid. But I don't find it to be as effective.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so, but that is another. Again, having another um, another uh, tool that we can use in our armamentarium. There's, I'm
1: to hear you say that. It's, in the same way that Matt sort of airs his his guilty conscience, like I, I I like to ask people to confirm biases I already have, and I just I never really understood the appeal of tram at all. It seems like it has All the unwanted side effects um, with some drug drug interaction stuff, but none, it doesn't really confer any benefit other than you can say it's not just a a pure opiate. So I just, I never really understood the use. Do you find it helpful in any particular circumstances?
2: When I get a patient who has said, well, tramadol works for me, then I'll go to that. But it's (laughs) it's typically not my first choice, just because uh, the experience I've had is people. Don't seem it doesn't seem to work for folks. Yeah, uh, but again, I, I mean, I'm not. I, I'll certainly try it for if um, a patient feels that it's helpful, or we've tried other things, um, and that's something that's left that we can use.
0: Yeah, because I I do I I, I will say this I do use a fair amount of tramadol, I, of course, on a trial basis because it seems like patients either. Respond to it, or they just say that does nothing. You know, I need something right. stronger than that, and I'm mm-hmm. probably under treating them at this point because usually I'm trying to use other adjuvant medications. And I, I do have a much older practice; most of my patients are 75 or older. And mm-hmm. the problem, the problem is, it's like okay, Tylenol doesn't work, Tramadol doesn't work, the topicals don't work. Um, if we try injections, I guess we're still talking about mm-hmm. osteoarthritis here. Then. Right. Then it's like I, I'm not always sure what to do. I, I will try things like SNRIs or I might try really low dose TCAs, but I always in the back of my mind I'm like I know these medic, uh, you know I know the TCAs are on the beers list. I know, you know I'm like <laughs> violating what I should yeah. be, uh, what I should <laughs> be doing here. But uh, sometimes you're kind of backed into a corner, right, um, right. And and maybe the answer is uh, trying the low dose opiates, especially if you have a patient uh, that you're not worried about diversion or, um, mm-hmm. you know, drug-seeking behavior. I do you Have you seen drug-seeking behavior from patients over 75 years old? Is that, I have to see, think that's a little more uh, uncommon.
2: Yes, but what is, I wouldn't say it's common, but uh, one of the things that we do see are when family members or the diversion issues yeah. Where you're treating the patient and they're, you can't get their pain under control. You're trying to figure out what's going on and they're on opioids and they're requiring more opioids and it's not working. And this is where having that whole interdisciplinary team there available to help out with taking care of the patient. You find out, well, there's a son or a granddaughter or someone that's taking their medicines. And that's why it's not effective because they don't have it. So that's still, you know, diversion still is an issue um in in that population, just in a different way. Um there I, there are I mean I've had colleagues who've had um some older patients who have themselves been <laughs> diverting them. Um but that's usually rare. I, I won't say that's that's um that never happens. I mean, there's always gonna be that one case out there, but um but typically it's family members or or other people in the household
0: so are you are you using pain contracts because uh, uh cashlac requires me to use a pain contract for anyone that gets put on chronic narcotic pain medications, and that tends to get patients feeling kind of like uncomfortable and it's mm-hmm. it's It's not my favorite thing to go through the entire like three page four page pain document either. Do you guys use mm-hmm. those?
2: In, in my practice, a lot of uh, in my the geriatric side of my practice, I work mostly in institutions, mm-hmm. and so it's long term care. But also, we do have some skilled, you know, post acute care folks. Um, with those people, typically we re- it's limited how much they get once they are discharged. Mm-hmm. Um, but some of my colleagues have gone through those. Um, like you said, it's another deterrent for preventing um, you
0: know, misuse. Right. Because that, that's just kind of a blanket thing. I don't even know if, if, if I wanted to, if I had a choice, unless I'm prescribing like 20 pills for someone with broken ribs, I think I pretty much have to sign a contract. But to be honest, I, I almost, I like it cause it empowers me a little bit be, where I can say, mm-hmm. well, you know, said we signed a contract that said if I didn't think it was working, I could stop it. Or, um, if you, you know, I'm not, I don't have to refill your pills early. If you lose them, it's your responsibility and things like that. So, cause, mm-hmm. cause
1: no, I, I agree. It's and especially if you're in a residency practice, I mean, it's with at the attending level, I think there's such variation in practice that it, in a way it sort of protects the practice itself from, uh, being accused of bias or from inconsistency, and particularly when you have residents involved, it, it really takes kind of, in some in some sense, all their autonomy out of it. So they're they're actually protected in some sense because they can only follow the the rules in the contract. So there's no blame for them. It's I'm sorry, I'm just so I, I actually I do find it protective in most cases, and I think it also underscores that there are potential concerns with the medications too. So I I don't I don't think I hate the pain contract probably as, as much as you do.
0: Yeah, I, I'm just I'm just lazy. I just don't like reading it, <laughs> reading it to the patient. Uh, it's just like a lot of yeah. I I just I, maybe I just don't like reading. Maybe that's what oh, I'm saying. All the
2: signatures is exhausting. <laughs> I hear you. And it's you have to find you camp. have to track
0: down a witness. Come on, Paul. It so it's champs, crazy. Though. Yeah. No. <laughs> um. <It's wrong>. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I, I also wanted to ask you about. Uh, about like neuropathic pain and uh, are you also using opiates for neuropathic pain or do you have a different approach when you're dealing with someone with like a diabetic neuropathy or postherpetic neuralgia something like that?
2: Yeah, with neuropathic pain, um, definitely trying some of the, um, you know, the gabapentins and the Lyricas of the world and um, working from that aspect. Um, rarely do I use opioids for, for neuropathic pain, although there is some, there is some evidence that there, there may be some benefit. Um, we really try to avoid that. Um, in very difficult patients, uh, where pain is just not controlled, we've tried everything. You know, one of the medications, old medications that are out there that can be helpful is methadone but methadone in itself, um, I would not recommend someone prescribing that if they don't know how to prescribe it. Um, and especially in today's environment, it's, you've got to be very, very cautious. Um, but that, but that is another tool that, that can be used that has, um, some neuropathic qualities about it as well as the opioid portion. But again, that's, That's not the first, you know. That's not first line. That's going to be after trying multiple different things, and Mm -hmm. um, and it hasn't been successful.
0: Well, I'm not sure the uh, what Virginia's stance is on medical marijuana, but we have uh, in in Texas we have access to Marinol or the cannabinoids, and Mm -hmm. I know that they're being used with some good effect for people who have either a neuropathic pain or a centralized pain pain syndrome where uh and, and that's used to um pretty well uh and it has it doesn't seem to have a lot of the negative side effects that some of these other some of these other agents we have talked about and to my knowledge the marinol is not on the beers list which is for the geriatric population is a you know it's hard to find things that's that aren't
2: <laughs> yeah. yeah in virginia um it's it's illegal uh, medi- medical marijuana um, mm-hmm. in terms of marinol. I really haven't used that that much. Um, when I have used it, it's usually, you know, we always worry about delirium with that. Mm-hmm. Um, we use, I use like two and a half, like half the dose at nighttime. Okay. Um, but um, I mean, it's not a go-to drug for me, okay. but it's definitely something that we will we'll try if uh, other things haven't worked.
0: Yeah, I, I haven't uh I haven't seen it I haven't used it enough probably to know how how frequent it is that people are getting delirium with it but I think it it kind of came out of uh I think for multiple sclerosis it's been used a bunch um for that kind of neuropathic pain and I think it's sort of uh, we're seeing a lot of the pain doctors down here in Texas are starting to use that and I'm happy because um a lot of the time what happens and this is more with the younger patients if you send we send them to a pain doctor intending for them to just get an injection but they end up getting mm-hmm. there and the person just slaps them on a bunch of opiates and they just uh you know then then for they're they're 40 years old or 50 years old and then the rest of their life they're there's no there's no exit strategy there it's just like you're you're on these for the rest of your life so that's right, that kind of practice that's a, a bit of a different discussion but i'm I'm glad that they're starting to use marinol in place of that in some of these folks i mm-hmm. but who knows it hasn't been around that long, so I'm not sure if maybe we'll we'll learn some bad things about it uh, here in the future
2: yeah the one the one thing with marinol what we typically if if we're going to use it is uh, we ask the patient, have they ever used marijuana in their life? And we find that those who have used marijuana, they tend not to get the delirium Mm -hmm. as much as someone who's never been on marijuana before or has never had marijuana. So that's kind of a a little bit of a screening question to see if they will get delirium. And again, to try to combat that using half the dose at nighttime um, helps decrease the delirium that that can occur.
0: And are you seeing, um, f- for for your patients, I guess to switch things up a little bit here, um, mm-hmm. for patients who have dementia and might be cognitively impaired, is that changing the way that you approach any of this from a um, pain standpoint and whether or not you're going to go to opiates after they fail Tylenol or some of the other first-line agents we talked about?
2: Right. Um, that That is a very that's a very vulnerable population because if you have someone who's cognitively impaired they may not express pain the, the way that we that that we're used to it may be grimacing or maybe uh, behavioral issues so typically the approach is again scheduling the Tylenol um, and it's amazing you may have someone who's extremely agitated or has quote the behavioral problems and you put them on some scheduled Tylenol and it goes away. It's just pain that was not treated. Um, so what happens if you've done the scheduled Tylenol and it, it hasn't been helpful? Um, then, you know, the, the next thing is we, we avoid the NSAIDs, we avoid the, the TCAs, um, perhaps giving a trial of um, a dose oxycodone, um, maybe in the morning or in the evening and, and seeing if that helps at all. And of course, this is after you've done a physical exam, making sure there's nothing else that may be causing the mm-hmm. you know, agitation or behavioral issues. Right. Do you
1: have a standardized approach to patients with dementia or maybe you have uh, communication issues when you're assessing for pain? I mean, other than sort of getting historical detail from, from caretakers and, and sort of the more objective stuff. Is there is there any tools that you use or any ways that you actually sort of formally uh, assess?
2: For those who are still verbal, they, they still can give pretty accurate pain scales. The typical zero to ten for some of them. Uh, otherwise, we use uh, the historical type of data. We talk to the CNAs or family members, and you know what, what just behavioral type of um, behavioral type of cues um, to try to figure it out. Okay. It, that's what makes it really challenging because it's it's hard to tell are is, are they agitated or are they just sleepy or you know, what's going on with them
0: right we're and we're talking about this I, I'm just thinking in my head like how many people are on uh, the antipsychotic medications uh, <laughs> inappropriately and all they really mm-hmm. needed was like a low dose oxycodone at bedtime or something so right um, none of my own patients for sure I'm really good at picking up on this so. It's not, <laughs> Couldn't it be me.
2: Yeah.
0: Um, <laughs> all right. I I actually think you're kind of uh, convincing me to that. I'm I'm certainly I'm I'm I was aware that I was probably being this way, being too strict on on kind of following that ladder of you know for for these patients who clearly have um, like osteoarthritis that's just not responding to injections or the first line medications and and whether whether I kind of try try out. So maybe I will uh, kind of branch out It's using some narcotics, because right now I'm using very few other than patients mm-hmm. I inherited on them.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think part of it, too, is not looking at, well, is the pain better? It's also looking at what's their function. Is their function improved? Um, in, a, in, the, in a geriatric population, kind of the, the way you measure things are in how they feel and how they function. Yeah. Um, versus, you know, my pain score went from a 10 to a eight or a five or a zero. Um, maybe the, the better question is, so were you able to get out of bed this morning? Um, or were you able to take a walk this morning? Um, kind of looking at, looking at it from a lens of function, um, versus the actual pain level.
0: And we, uh, earlier on an earlier show talked to, talked with somebody from Michigan uh, Doctor Claw about chronic pain and fibromyalgia, and he was, uh, I was asking him kind of how he follows those patients. Does he keep having them fill out the fibromyalgia questionnaire? And what he was saying is, mm-hmm. no, I don't, I don't really do that because I don't want them to focus on numbers. I want to focus on what their function is. So I guess you're in good company and in, in practicing that way. And the other part of that I wanted to bring up is for your elderly folks who have fibromyalgia, because I think there's a fair amount. Do you have yet another approach for those for those patients?
2: I think for those as well, it's it's almost it's similar to those who have neuropathic pain. So not going to the opioids right off as quickly, um, looking at some of the other uh, the cymbaltas or the um, uh, gabapentin's of, of the of the world, and trying some of the, the these other things. Um, and and I mentioned this. This should be after trying some of the non-pharmacological things, so really focusing on just activity, exercise, um, maybe physical therapy, um, cognitive behavioral therapies, uh, you know, trying some of those things first, um, and then moving on to the pharmacologics.
0: And. Yeah, I was telling, uh, Paul and I were talking a little bit before this. There were some guidelines for fibromyalgia. I'll give a plug for them because I found them helpful for my practice uh, from ULAR, E-U-L-A-R. The, they, they put out some fibromyalgia guidelines uh, in July 2016, and they they sort of hit right on what you're talking about here uh the the starting with the non pharmacologics like aerobic aerobic exercise or strengthening exercises the cbt and and uh sort of physical therapy or acupuncture even things like that and just sort of really giving them a whole bunch of options there um and and they did use a lot of the agents that you're talking about um they were they were talking about all ages not the, just the elderly so they left they do have some of the tcas listed on there but it's, um, it's pretty comparable to what you were talking about. Is, do, do you think that um, fibromyalgia is any more or less common in the elderly than it is in folks in their kind of 40s, 50s, 60s? Hmm,
2: that's a good question. Um, I mean, in my practice I, I honestly, I haven't seen as much fibromyalgia in the geriatric population as in the younger population. Um, but again, it may be, I have a skewed, a bit of a skewed population because uh, again, some, most are in the facilities. Um, so I don't have an outpatient geriatric practice, so I I may have a, a a different population that I'm working with. So I'm sorry, I can't give you a straight answer on that one.
0: That's okay. That's okay. Uh, (laughs) probably was, yeah. Um,
2: she
1: says she doesn't have to indulge your obsession with fibromyalgia. Man. Yeah.
0: I'm so so uh I've been maybe I've been traumatized by several patients with fibromyalgia who bang down my door every week. And
1: uh,
0: um yeah, that's why that's why I seek out the answers, Paul.
1: No, it's beautiful. So, I, I do have a question. You mentioned you mentioned CBT. I'm I'm just wondering practically um how often you use cognitive behavioral therapies. And actually, I guess in another corollary, sort of what's kind of your go-to non-pharmacologic therapy, especially since aerobic exercise in this particular patient population, you can often be fairly limited just by their by their functional capacity. So I guess it's a, I'm stacking questions, but um, what is kind of your go-to non-pharmacologic approach, or I guess it's sort of dependent, but then how do you use CBT and how effective have you found it?
2: Sure. So in terms of just activity, some, I mean, it's just sometimes just getting up, and getting out of bed and just doing, you know, we say exercise, uh, we, we term it more as just being a little bit more active because uh, we can't certainly ask them to run marathons, right? Um, so just starting off with, you know, moving from your bedroom to the out, outdoors, if that's even possible. So just starting with baby steps um, in terms of cognitive behavioral therapy, you know the the limiting factor is we just don't have many resources for that. Um, I have referred some patients and with some success, but it's it's difficult, especially if you have a geriatric patient who is dependent on others for transportation. Perhaps you know, kind of the not not as mobile geriatric patient. Um, it, it's difficult. It's hard for them to get to the resources. Right. Um, So that 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 does um, present a challenge.
0: There, when when uh, when I spoke with Dr. Claw about this, he he actually has a YouTube video about chronic pain or what what you call persistent pain, and it's basically a, a group CBT session. It's it's a long video. It's it's an hour and a half, but it's on YouTube, so. If, if you have a, a tech-savvy um, geriatric patient, they, they can watch this video, kind of explains how chronic pain works and what medications might might or might not work for it and might be a good idea. Uh, he's sort of an anti-opiate guy, so it's probably not going to talk uh, talk much about the use of opiates, but uh, mm-hmm. definitely um, that I guess that has been studied and it and also has a website called fibroguide.com and both of those resources have been studied and actually work just as well as medical therapy for um, reducing pain pain scores in patients. So that's kind of like CBT for patients don't have to leave the house. So I've been using that for some wow. of my folks with some success since I learned about it.
2: Yeah. That's great. What is it? Is
0: FibroGuide, you said? FibroGuide.com. Um,
2: okay. Yeah. I'll have to, t- to check that out.
0: Yeah. And if you search his YouTube, his name is Doctor Claw C L A U W, and he's from University of Michigan. His, uh, if you just search his name on YouTube and chronic pain, the video will come up. But it's, oh, it's a it's a good video. It definitely kind of explains it to people. So if they're if they're able to uh, access the internet and they have their faculties about them, they they might be able to self educate a little bit. And Paul and I talked to someone the other week about uh, insomnia, and there's there's resources for online CBT for insomnia now. So that, that might be a something for, for these patients who are homebound um, and for the clinics mm-hmm. and, and also for us as providers having limited resources to kind of farm these things out.
2: That's wonderful. Uh, I'll have to check those out, but that, that I, I always forget how great technology is.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. We are. Uh, I, I am a big fan. Certainly. Um, well, I don't have too many more questions here. I, I think this has been helpful, and uh, at this point in the show, I usually ask Paul if he has any any more questions.
1: Yeah, why? Well, you, you, I'm going to steal one that you had written down previously. Now that now that you've convinced Matt to prescribe opiates for for all, um, I, is there? <laughs> he had a question about, and this is something I'm interested in too. Do you ever do either overdose counseling with family members or co-prescribe naloxone uh, for patients who are on sort of higher doses of, of chronic opioids?
2: Oh, um, certainly we do have conversations about, uh, about overdose and abuse, um, especially in today's environment. It's, it's on the news, it's on social media. Um, so we certainly do talk with them about that and the dangers, um, in terms of naloxone. Um, I, I've not done that, um, I'm trying to think if I've ever done. I don't think I've ever done that, but I, I need to probably educate myself a little bit more on 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 uh, on doing that with our patients with, with who are on chronic opioids.
1: Yeah, it's it's not a terribly common practice uh, to my knowledge, but it's, it's actually one of our resident groups was looking at it as a QI project, and I think there was something fairly recently in Annals about it. So I'm not. I don't think it's
2: mm.
1: quite caught on across the nation quite yet, but I'm. I, I have a feeling it's probably coming.
0: Yeah, I, I haven't read the study, Paul, but I I know the one you're talking about. I did see or or the article about that. I, I think that is something. And and some of the residents recently brought it up to me. It wasn't something I had thought about. They were even for hospitalized patients. They were asking me if they needed to order. These were new interns uh, last month asking if they needed to order naloxone when they were prescribing someone opiates for acute pain in the hospital. And
1: oh my I gosh, didn't, awesome. yeah, I didn't.
0: Yeah, I I said I it's. I mean it's not going to be given unless they overdose so I guess it's fine to order <laughs> it. I didn't <laughs> I didn't have a good answer but but I wow. think I think outpatient uh because there's been so many overdoses uh people mm-hmm. people are really starting to look at it so that's something that I'll have to look at for my own practice too because I I'll probably need to isn't there a like a, a a specific delivery system for the Narcan and everything? I'll, I'll probably need to in order to be able to educate people about it, I'll either need to get a pharmacist to teach me or or mm-hmm. uh go to a class for it um before I start using that. So that's an interesting interesting point, Paul. Marisa, uh, do you have some take-home points for our listeners?
2: Sure. I I think, you know, one of the things with all of the all of the media and all of the um, I wouldn't say sensationalization, but just this, this almost overproduction of, of, um, concern or overcaution for opioids. I mean, absolutely, there, there have been so many deaths and misuse in opioids, but I'm, I'm afraid people are now too scared to prescribe it, and it is a great tool for a certain population. Um, so, don't be afraid to use those medications if you need to. Again, it's looking at quality of life, looking at function for our older for our older patients. And just because they don't have cancer, they can still have pain from advanced heart failure, uh, COPD, renal disease, osteoarthritis. So, um, even though they don't have cancer, they still have pretty significant pain. And as we as we mentioned earlier. Sometimes we're not looking for the pain, or they're not telling us about it, so it's often undertreated because it's underdiagnosed. And um, you know, again, quality of life and, and function, using those as measures when we're talking about pain and, and that the geriatric population. I think that's one of the things I, I want folks to really take away. Um, it's not going from ten to zero. It's it's looking at well was. Mrs. So and So able to get out of bed and uh, make herself breakfast this morning. I mean, looking at function is very important.
1: That's a fantastic point.
0: Well, I really thank you for your time and your teaching. This is helpful, and uh, as as the goal of our show, I think this will be practice changing for me. Uh, and and that's the whole point. So, thank <laughs> you so much. <laughs> No, I didn't. I didn't mean that it was all about me. I just, meant it's, it's the point is practice changing for for me, for the listeners, for everybody. So.
2: Well, thank you again. I appreciate the opportunity. Extraordinarily helpful. Thank you so much.
0: All right, awesome. Well, thank you so much, and you have a good night.
2: You too. Thanks again, y'all. Have a great one. Okay. All right. Thanks Bye.
0: This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. You can find show notes along with links to any articles, books, websites, or apps mentioned on the show at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast. Please subscribe to us on iTunes and don't forget to leave us a review. This will help others discover the show. You can contact us on our pages on Facebook, LinkedIn, Google+, or follow us on Twitter at The Curbsiders. And if you'd like to send us an email, you can reach us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. Until next time, I've been Dr. Matthew Otto.
1: And this is Dr. Paul Williams.
0: Thanks for listening. Okay. All right. I think that was pretty
2: good.